Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soto. The idea of a singular religious identity is commonplace for most people in the United States, where people are quick to associate or not associate large portions of their identity with one single religious tradition. However, singular religious identity doesn't work for some people. For example, for some Asian Americans, singular religious identity doesn't make sense since many Asian nations mix Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism teaching. Furthermore, intermarriage between practitioners of different religious traditions is also diversifying the religious landscape of the United States. On this show, I've been interested in having discussions related to interfaith, interreligious practices, and fluid spiritual identity. Spiritual fluidity is when people regularly cross religious boundaries to celebrate religious bonds and blur social categories, while also enriching their own lives and practices. Today's conversation is about a new book that excited me a whole lot to read. The book, When One Religion Isn't Enough, The Lives of Spiritually Fluid People, profiles the lives of people who cross these boundaries and live in multiple religious worlds. My guest on this episode is Dr. Dwayne Bidwell. He is a professor of practical theology, spiritual care, and counseling at Claremont School of Theology in Claremont, California. A clinical fellow of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, Bidwell has been a chaplain, pastor, counselor, and nonprofit director. He is both a Buddhist and a Christian. He lives the topics of spiritual fluidity as presented in his book, When One Religion Isn't Enough. The book is out now from Beacon Press. I read it and I loved it. We had a blast chatting about the book, his spiritually fluid life, my own journey within those topics, and we also discussed how he sees himself as a steward for other people's stories and lived experiences as a researcher. So without further delay, I sincerely hope you enjoy this conversation with Dwayne Bidwell. so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This is a real pleasure. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? <laughs> sure. I'm Dwayne Bidwell. I uh, teach on the faculty of Claremont School of Theology in Southern California, and I am a professor of practical theology, spiritual care, and counseling. And I also am a senior staff clinician and supervisor at the Kleinbell Institute for Pastoral Counseling and Psychotherapy, which is both a service center for the community and a training center for our psychotherapy students here at the seminary. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about all kinds of things today. We're going to talk a lot about your book, When One Religion Isn't Enough, The Lives of Spiritually Fluid People, which I just finished and I loved. So, um, but before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about your backstory because I think it's really, really important for understanding the stories that are in the book. And so you have some personal religious fluid affiliations yourself. Um, can you tell a little bit about what spiritual traditions you grew up in first? Well, I was baptized as an infant, right, uh, in the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, but largely unchurched um, in my, my family. Um, my, my parents were horse people, and we spent our Sundays on the road going to horse shows. Uh, when I did go to church, it was usually with um, my maternal grandparents, who were Methodists. And my memory of that is that my grandmother would sit me on one side of her and my brother on the other in the pew, and she would pinch a little tiny piece of our stomach mm. fat. And if we started to misbehave, she would squeeze. So I learned to sit still in church, but I didn't really pay attention. Um, and then in high, I, I dated a, a Methodist minister's daughter and um, in high school and uh, got a little more enculturated into what that life was like and started attending Quaker meetings to sit in silence, um, to drawn to that kind of contemplative, um, silent practice. And... Then in college, I uh, took a course in Buddhism uh, while I was also working as a reporter at the local newspaper. 
And as part of my reporting duties, I uh, wrote a story about a Laotian refugee community um, that was built like a traditional village uh, around a Buddhist temple. And the, the monks at the temple were from Thailand. They were missionaries to the refugees and um, started studying Buddhism that way. Um, and eventually um, began studying with a Vietnamese teacher um, in, in Dallas. And uh, that, that contemplative meditative practice led me back to the church. Um, and uh, I became the director of a, an interfaith um, HIV AIDS um, agency and began to meet um, Christians that I had never known before um, in, in the progressive Christian community that was uh, engaged in HIV AIDS work um, and um, gradually uh, began then to study Christian theology, eventually uh, decided to pursue ordination. Um, but it was difficult for me to, um, to cut ties with the world of Buddhism. Uh, and I continued to practice Vipassana meditation and to read Buddhist texts and to occasionally go to the temple. Um, and and a, a large part for years of me trying to figure out where I was at was trying to figure out if these two things could come together or if they were absolutely diametrically opposed. How old were you again when you found Buddhism? Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, you know, like a, a college senior, college, junior. I was interested in Buddhism all along, but I never studied it or had a teacher, right? Um, yeah. So you have so many, you have, you, have, you have so many similar things to me. Like I grew up in the Catholic church, but I, w I wasn't like engaged. You know, I wasn't like paying attention and I wasn't really letting it all sink in. So I, I completely under, I completely am on board with so many parts of your story because then I found texts in Buddhism in college as well. Like, you know, by Brad Warner wrote about like, hardcore punk rock and Zen Buddhism practice and things like that. So, you know, I found those things at kind of like the same age that you did. So that's really interesting. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about your ordination because you tell a story in the book that I just loved. You became ordained after years of Christian practice and Buddhist training. And this moment that you write about during your Presbyterian discernment, a gentleman asks you if you believe Jesus Christ is the only way to achieve salvation and spend eternity in heaven with God. And you answered, no, I don't believe that. Why did you continue your ordination after that moment? Uh, why did I continue my ordination after that moment? Yeah. Um, I don't think I've ever asked myself that question. Uh, um, because I, d I don't hear... Um, uh, commitment to the exclusivity of Christ as a prerequisite for being ordained as a minister in the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. The, the PCUSA is a big tent, and there are various theological positions within it. Um, and it is defensible uh, to have a pluralistic view of religions and um, not an exclusivistic view. And um, so the, the discernment process is, are you the sort of person who should be ordained as a Presbyterian minister, right? It was important to me to be um, honest and uh, direct um, in my conversations with the committee um, and with my um, sponsor and congregation. Um, but it, it, I wasn't going to unilaterally end the process um, when I felt like it was still a good fit, that I was still mm. called to Presbyterian ministry. Um, now, the Presbyterian Church might have decided that wasn't the case, um, but that's not ultimately what the PCUSA decided. Yeah, you know, because the easy answer would be, yes, that's what I believe. But then, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for like a career where you're like hiding a huge part of your identity, wouldn't you? Correct. Exactly. Um, so looking back, maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of that moment when I'm reading it in the book than, than you think back on it. But looking back, does that moment make you like proud or does it, does it like give you like the emotional like butterflies in your stomach or does it make you feel hopeful for the future that other people may read that and be like, wow, I can do that too. Like what does that make that moment, uh, that memory make you feel? Um, it, it reminds me partly of the, um, the trauma of the ordination process. Uh, mm -hmm. Teaching the seminary, I know that for almost everyone, the process of, of going through ordination um, has some really painful moments. And there's a sense in which um, there are people who have power over you 
And um, the, for a lot of people, the dilemma is always how honest to be. Um, and part of what I feel, looking back on that, is sadness that no one else on the committee uh, jumped in um, to um, engage me around that question, right? That, that um, there was hesitation to even have that kind of uh, conversation in the committee itself, that, that one person was allowed to say, this is the norm that you need to meet. Um, I hope that the story um, helps people see that you can live through <laughs> uh, the tensions and anxieties of the ordination process and that it isn't necessary to, uh, to be dishonest um, or uh, uh, compromise yourself, to not have integrity. Uh, and eventually someone um, who was on the committee but not at the meeting that day said, um, you preserved your integrity in the way you answered the committee and that counts for a lot in our eyes. Um, that that um, you were willing to to disclose and be honest about who you are, um, and so I, I hope that's part of what that communicates. Yeah. So, as a Presbyterian minister and a Theravadan Buddhist, what is most rewarding to you, personally or professionally, about being both? Oh wow. Um, Maintaining connections to both. Um, one is a formal connection and a, a leadership connection, and the other is an informal connection. Um, lets me engage my whole self, my whole spiritual self, um, in worship. And um, it gives me conversation partners when I encounter uh, difficult situations or times when I'm not sure uh, what's what to think or what's going on um, to kind of triangulate uh, my experience by looking at it through a Christian lens and then a Buddhist lens and um, and uh, begin to make sense of what's going on and and then discern how I might respond um, in a more um, in a more holistic way and in a less kind of rigid way. It gives me more options for responding to who I experience God to be mm. uh, than I might have otherwise. That doesn't mean everybody needs to have bonds to more than one tradition, right? Sure. But I, I would argue that this is something that God has called me to, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, God used Buddhism uh, to bring me back to the church. Uh, and um, we speak the language of Vipassana meditation together. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. What is uh? What's most challenging? This might not be so much of a question today because you've been doing this, pursuing these paths for so many years now. But what is most challenging in the United States about being two things instead of just one? Oh, I, I don't think I can answer that kind of universal question. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> or speak for everything in the United States. I, I would say one of the things that was difficult for me um, early on in, as I started theological education was this idea that religions are mutually exclusive and that faith has to be rational. Um, that you ha It's logical. You have to have logical doctrine. You have to engage systematic theology and um, that if you were going to engage both, you had to synthesize them or find a way that they didn't conflict with each other. And the more I studied, the more I began to see uh, that my kind of easy, facile uh, um, equations of one thing with another, for, so for salvation and enlightenment, or uh, uh, nirvana and heaven, right? That, that those things are really different, um, and they don't cohere together. They're not the same. and uh, that that's okay. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of something. So um, a big misconception I think that people tend to have about religions is that everybody's like, oh, religions are all the same in the end anyway. And that's a debate that's been happening for a long time. And there's a book, there's a line in your book that I loved. And you wrote, I do not believe that God is one or that all paths reach the same mountain. And you may be aware of the religious studies scholar, Stephen Prothero, who has a book called God is Not One, which I also love. And he sort of argues against Houston Smith's notions of paths up the same mountain. 
Um, what convinced you that all religions are not basically the same? Um, listening to wise elders from different traditions say, um, um, look where my path goes is not where your path goes. The, the ultimate telos or goal of my path is, is different than the, the goal in your path. That doesn't mean one is more legitimate than another, but they are, the practices take you in different places as similar as they can seem. They are like medicines for different ailments, right? So if we think of religions as diagnosing the human predicament and then offering a therapy, um, and I don't mean that in like touchy-feely therapeutic way, but in, sure. in a way about healing, um, to address that predicament, um, they have different understandings of what it means to address suffering and uh, what it takes to be a whole human being. And um, I trust those elders, one. Two, um, when I talk to people who are what I would call um, uh, followers of the perennial philosophy, Houston Smith, or um, monocentric pluralists who say, oh yeah, there are lots of paths, but they all go to one place. Um, what I start to hear is that what the ultimate is for them looks an awful lot like the ultimate in their tradition and doesn't account for the differences. And um, there is a really subtle colonial um, uh, tendency in that. And it is more important for me to reserve uh, what the Reformed Christian tradition would call the sovereignty of God <laughs> mm. um, and to um, allow those traditions to be what they are and um, to honor the places where they say these are different than to try and say from where I stand they're the same. You know what? From where I stand they look the same but if uh, I can look out my window at Cucamonga Peak here and uh, it looks like a triangle but if I drive 10 miles to the east it looks very different. Mm. I you know, from where I stand right here, I don't know all that there is to know about Cucamonga Peak. Um, right. Um, okay. So that's, that's brilliant. I, I love listening to that. I'm going to, I'm actually looking forward to I'm listening just, back to that. I just love that you tell me I'm brilliant. Would you uh, compliment me? No, I'm kidding. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I got the book here. Love it. And when one religion isn't enough, the lives of spiritually fluid people. And I want to dig into this term spiritually fluid here for a second. How is spiritual fluidity different from uh, the term interfaith? Because these are popular terms right now. And I'm just curious what the, uh, what the breakdown of the terminology is and why you chose the terms that you did. Um. I think first I should say, I don't know how that term is necessarily different than interfaith. Because oh, okay. That's not a term I use, although I'm familiar that it's out there. And I teach a class called Interfaith uh, Pastoral Care and Counseling. Um, I find the word interfaith problematic for lots of reasons. And um, I, I think of spiritually fluid as, or complex religious bonds as the same thing, as a very big umbrella under which these other things fit. Um, and it, it was my attempt to find an umbrella term to account for all of the ways people talk about complex religious bonds. Um, dual practice, dual belonging, religious borrowing, uh, hybridity, all of those things. Um, I, part of the problem for scholars in writing about uh, religious multiplicity or complex religious bonds is we don't have shared language. And um, uh, we, we need at least one thing we can agree on <laughs> to parse out how we're thinking differently about these things. Mm. So I don't know if that answered your question, Greg. Yeah, no, it's interesting because these are terms that I'm, I'm wrestling with all the time. You know, doing a show like this, I talk to so many different people who have so many different traditions. And, you know, I'm always just seeking to learn a little bit more. And terms change so much throughout decades of use and they can just mean totally different things. So I, I always have enjoyed following the trajectory of how language develops over time and how we colloquially use things and, you know, just what we, what we do, how we describe ourselves. Yeah. So my hesitation around interfaith comes from two places, I think. One is the idea that re religions are faith traditions and that they're separate and um, their systems whole unto themselves with uh, rigid boundaries is sort of an artifact of modernist religious studies approaches, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the Western Academy created that understanding of religion. And um, 
it doesn't match the way all religions think about themselves. The other is that there are, there are religions that don't see faith as a part of what they are. And my Jewish friends um, don't like the word interfaith because they don't consider Judaism a faith, right? Mm. Uh, in the way scholars might. And so out of respect for those who, who have a problem with the word faith or understand faith to be a Christian concept, um, I don't want to use the word because it, it is potentially alienating. Um, and um, I, would, I would use interreligious rather than interfaith. But. Okay, great. Okay. Um, so I'm curious about uh, why you decided to um, do this book. Why did you decide that this project was something that you wanted to see through? Because there's a lot of... Um, you know, you have interviewees who talk to you for the book. You have a lot of personal details within the book. Um, what got you going on this project? Because, you know, that's uh, something that interests me as well when I was reading it. Um, I remember the moment that the, the kernel of this book came to me. And um, I was sitting at a, a, an academic meeting um, called together by the Association of Theological Schools uh, to consider what Christian hospitality looked like in an interreligious world. Mm. And there was a panel of people talking about multiple religious belonging. Um, and that was an identity I would have claimed for myself at that time. And uh, in my clinical practice and my pastoral practice, I interact with lots of people who bring traditions together. And I listened to this panel of, uh, you know, tenured scholars in theological schools talk about religious multiplicity and found myself saying, this is so incomplete. This so does not match the experience of the people I care with. Uh, and it doesn't match my experience. And there are whole dimensions of having an allegiance to more than one tradition that's not being accounted for here. And that we are mostly framing this in, in Christian language. And we're trying to norm spiritually fluid people against uh, one tradition for a large part, right? Not everybody, but in this panel, I was just getting really frustrated that we weren't acknowledging people who are born into religious multiplicity. We were framing it as always a choice. We were framing it as always a source of suffering, uh, as an attempt to um, logically cohere different traditions. And I sketched out on a napkin at that point, like, Here's, here's a book that we could write. One chapter could be on choosing, one chapter could be on inheriting, and one chapter could be on um, collaborating, responding to God in, in, in a religiously complex way, um, and, and frame that as this phenomenon is more complex than you think it is. The other thing that, um, as I thought about it then, began to really bother me about the way the academy was talking about religious multiplicity is we were primarily talking about white folks who chose it. And mm -hmm. we were not accounting for uh, the racial, ethnic, and cultural dimensions of religious multiplicity in that panel or very well in many other parts of our scholarship. And so I wanted a book that also engaged those dimensions. That's all, that's wonderful. So, and in the book, you how many people are in the book? You you don't have that many interview participants, right? It's pretty small, isn't it? It's five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, what's really interesting is I almost feel like a year from now you could find five different people, and you could seek to write the same kind of book with the same model, but the stories would all be so different. I mean, you could write this book so many times; it could almost be a series, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. In the book, you retell these stories and you are very careful. You lay out language about how careful you are as the interviewer, as the researcher. And I think that this is really important because journalistic and research integrity is something that's talked about a lot in the world. And you are talking about your interviewees' deepest held life convictions. And you even say that a limitation of that is, quote, a retold story never comes to readers in as pure a state as when the original storyteller entrusted it to the writer. And then later in the book, you write how you can't claim, quote, to know things about other people, things such as meanings, motives, or thoughts, none of which I can know without asking. How do you see your responsibility as the researcher here? Because this is very delicate, very personal stuff that you're dealing with. 
Sure. Um, I, I need not to colonize other people's stories with my interpretation. Yeah. I, um, I don't need to tell them what their story means or what they're experiencing. Um, and, you know, if I am thinking to myself, well, you're talking, well, Greg's motive for asking this question is X, Y, and Z. That says nothing about your motive. It says a lot about my either hermeneutic of generosity or suspicion, right? Mm -hmm. it, it says a lot about me, what I think motivates people, what I think motivates you, but it doesn't say anything about you. So in, in recreating those interview stories, I, I, I knew I was offering an interpretation, but I also tried not to add things that I couldn't know um, without checking out. And, you know, all of the interviewees um, reviewed the section of the book that they appear in, the sections, um, and gave feedback and uh, corrected things or told me when I got it wrong. Um, they all chose either their own pseudonym or to use their, um, their legal names, right? Um, and uh, I would say that that's, that's a value of mine, not just for writing and research, but in teaching and interacting with people anyway. Uh, that I can't know. You know, I'm a pastoral theologian by training. We start with human experience, but we also understand that we never have access to pure experience. We always receive a story about it that has already been filtered and interpreted, right? Mm. Um, and um, so we have to be tentative about the things we claim. Now, I can then, as I did with these interviews, go through and do a sort of meta-analysis of themes and language and those kinds of things and identify some commonalities that I can interpret, but I need to say, this is Bidwell speaking. This is not the interviewees speaking, right? So it, I, I wanted to make sure that I was clear about the conclusions I was drawing or the, the hunches I'm putting forth versus what folks said to me. Okay. Um, so you write in, this, in the book as well, about a concept that I really enjoyed that you call seasons of multiplicity, which is sort of like the stages in which people become spiritually fluid. So me growing up as a Roman Catholic, I find a book about Buddhism by, by Brad Warner when I'm 21. And I start going through and reading that and thinking about how it incorporates with my past experiences and what conflicts with it and what gels with it. Can you tell me a little bit about the seasons of multiplicity where a believer of one tradition finds and works their way through varying stages of involvement of another? Because, you know, I stopped at a, you know, I, I would do like, I would dabble in like one day retreats and things like that and go to like a little sitting group, but I've never gone all the way. You know what I mean? So can you talk about the varying stages or seasons of multiplicity that you describe in the book? Sure. Um, I don't know that I can recall them all off the top of my head. But, it's okay. Um, what does this process look like? Well, it, it's different for everybody, right? And it, it's very different um, if you are born into multiplicity, like some of the focus in the book, um, or my friend Tahil Sharma, who is both Hindu and Sikh. He was on uh, the show. Oh, was he? Great. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, um, if you're born into it, you may skip some of the earlier seasons that people who choose it go through, right? Yeah. Um, but in the beginning, it's sort of like dabbling or playing or exploring. There's curiosity involved. So there's this attraction uh, to another um, religion. Um, and you start to read about it or you start to adopt or adapt some of the practices like you did, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of nightstand um, philosopher. You have a Thich Nhat Hanh book or uh, the Quran beside your bed uh, that you read. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're becoming Buddhist or Muslim, but it means that you're curious about those. See, you have the Quran right there at hand. There uh, it is. Uh, um, you're engaging it intellectually in some ways, um, but eventually you, you're gonna start exploring practices and, and being a dual practitioner maybe, which it sounds like what you were doing. Um, going to retreats, being part of a sitting group, but not taking vows as a Buddhist. Right. Not repudiating your Catholic background, um, although you didn't say that, so that's an assumption. Uh, and, uh, but you keep identifying yourself as having, you know, growing up Catholic. Um, 
and and gradually then you maybe begin to participate in multiple communities where you become a member of the community you're known and respected by each community as a part of that community and a practitioner of the faith whether you belong whether you join and become a member not all religions have membership right um, or not um, you are a part of both communities and both communities recognize you. And then you begin to shape, um, perhaps claim this multiple identity. I am both and. Not, I'm a Christian who occasionally sits at the Buddhist temple. I'm Christian and Buddhist. Right? Mm. And then eventually you may have this kind of more mature, um, hybrid um, uh, identity um, where it's so familiar to you and it's so life-giving to you that you you are able to help other people who are going through earlier stages, right? So that there's this um, this process of, of becoming seasoned um, or cured, uh, not in a health way, but like a piece of bacon is cured, right? Or yeah. preserved. Uh, and um, that, that you, um, you have some hard-earned wisdom um, to offer to other people at the later seasons, right? And not everyone reaches that stage. I would say most people um, stay somewhere in the middle. Um, okay. You know, that's really cool. And I loved a piece of the book as well, where you write about how most people who do identify as one thing are actually more spiritually fluid than they actually would know. Um, and you say most people are in fact spiritually fluid to one degree or another. How so? Like how is an ordinary Presbyterian in a congregation that you know um, actually more spiritually fluid than they might actually understand themselves to be? Um, well, in lots of ways. One is, uh, you know, Christianity isn't a monolithic tradition. It incorporates things it picked up from other faiths all throughout its history. Uh, and, um, they may also be watching Oprah and her kind of um, the, the spirituality of Oprah. You know, Oprah is one of the, the most preeminent public theologians in the United States. She does theology yeah. <laughs> without identifying it as such. Um, and that may not be what, what, what they're hearing and liking about what they hear in Oprah. It may not be congruent with Presbyterian doctrine, right? Um, they... Uh, they may believe in reincarnation, even though they're going to a Christian church. Um, they, uh, they may have family members who are married to Muslims or Jews, and they participate in family rituals um, uh, and life cycle rituals or holidays in those traditions uh, and enjoy that and find it fulfilling in some way. Um, so although they don't identify as fluid, they're always being influenced by multiple religious and spiritual traditions. You, you know, John Tatamaniel at Union uh, Theological Seminary in the city of New York says, uh, um, the most common form of dual belonging in the United States is capitalist Christian, uh, because capitalism can function as a religious or spiritual orientation, right? And... Um, uh, in in that case, there there um, are people who are dual without understanding it. For them, capitalism and Christianity look the same, uh, but but there are real inherent conflicts there. I think. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I I, I agree. That's so interesting. Now, one thing that's also springing to mind to me is as I was reading your book is the concept of secrecy. Now. I cannot recall a single time in my entire life where I actually talked openly and honestly with my family about, you know, jumping around from like uh, the Buddhist sitting group to going to synagogue to going to a puja. Never. I've never spoken to my family about these things. And I'm curious if you had that experience or if you heard other people tell you about how common it is to not confide in your family, to sort of hide what they were doing as if this was some kind of like a uh, bad thing to be doing. Absolutely. I would say most spiritually fluid people go through a process of hiding, maybe not from family always, but family often, um, or colleagues at work or religious leaders. Uh, they they don't disclose their multiple affiliations because of the judgment and shaming that come with that, because of the relational tensions and uh, betrayal. Some people would see it as betrayal that come with that. Um, they uh, they 
um, fear retribution in the workplace or at school if they um, reveal parts of their identity. Um, it's akin to, but not exactly like being in the closet as a, a gay or lesbian uh, bisexual person, right? That you have to choose where to disclose and you are always making judgments about when it is safe and when it's not, who needs to know and who doesn't. Um, and um, I think at the later, in the later seasons of religious sp spiritual fluidity, um, people are more willing to disclose. It, is, it doesn't create such anxiety. It is not, um, uh, it, it doesn't frighten them or overwhelm them as much. But early on, a lot of people don't feel the freedom to share. And there are families that, you know, um, would disown people or um, uh, reject people um, if they knew that they were uh, reaching out to more than one faith because religion is so closely tied to family identity and to cultural identity and in the United States and other places to socioeconomic class, right? Um, and um, it, it involves a lot of complex things. It's not a separate category encapsulated from the rest of our life. Mm. And, you know, I'm curious about your, uh, your own practice and what it does for you. Now, so I mentioned to you in one of our emails before we ever talked that uh, I had spoken to a man who is a Jesuit priest who is all, and he's also a Zen Roshi, Father Robert Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And I know you've read some of his work um, and you talk about a lot of people like him throughout the book. And in the book you write, so I want to talk a little bit about your Buddhist meditation practice. So you write, Buddhism changes the way I know and experience God. And Father Kennedy said that exactly the same thing to me during our conversation when he talked about Sashins and when he is so immersed that it is the, his, his way of looking inward. How does meditation develop your understanding of God? I know that's a big question, but what does that, because you also mentioned you did Quaker meetings where you would sit in silence. How does this sitting practice help you on your own internal journey of understanding God and your relationship to God? Um, I'm trying to think how to have a succinct answer to this. <laughs> I know, and that's that's the problem. Conversation, and we should be having whiskey right now. Um, the uh, vipassana meditation, um, insight meditation, is is a practice um, of having insight into the true nature of reality. Um, and in Theravada Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism, that's about the interdependent nature of all things right? Uh, that there is no self uh, apart from everything that constitutes, constitutes it. Um, and so meditation for me is a practice of bare attention, of uh, letting go of uh, what I'm thinking or feeling or the sensations or um, uh, everything that goes on inside of me. I, I'm using scare quotes there. Uh, <laughs> human being to find out what's, what, what is the ground in which all of those things happen. And um, how, does that, uh, how does that come to me? How do I become aware of it? How do I access it? How does it shape who I am? Um, and really learning to identify with something other than my biological uh, self and the emotions and thoughts and everything that seem to cohere in it. Um, and, and that means opening up to God as something not apart from the world, but God as the field in which these things unfold, right? Um, or the, the field that we play in. Um, mm. And um, it helps me be aware to attend to um, the presence of God uh, or spirit um, in, in other places. Um, it develops a capacity for concentration and a capacity for... Um, uh, awareness, um, uh, a non-reactive awareness of what's going on in the world, uh, and to let go of uh, things as they arise. Now, that doesn't mean I'm some divine human being, right? Or, I mean, you're still a human being. Your dog gets hit by a car and you, you feel bad, uh, but you might respond to that differently. And you might be aware of this kind of sustaining presence. Um, Buddhism wouldn't go there for a sustaining presence, at least my form of Buddhism wouldn't go there. 
but it it trains me to access that dimension and to know in ways that go beyond uh, the purely cognitive, rational, uh, logical in the Western sense. You know, and you said something back there just a minute ago about opening up. And, you know, as I get older, I want my view to be as as wide as possible. I want my view of the world every single year that I'm alive to get wider instead of narrower. And you write about a time in the book where you were deeply moved at a Pueblo ceremony in New Mexico, where you were open. And I'm personally drawn to the beauty of things like Kol Nidre and Sufi dervishes and Zen teachings like chop wood, carry water. And I also have been enjoying lately watching the Gurdjieff movements, which I'm still just enjoying watching. I'm never done. Um, so when you open yourself to these experiences and traditions in the world, what are some of your favorite traditions outside of Buddhism and Christianity that you also enjoy looking at? Do you, is there anything else that you're also enjoying looking at and studying and just growing from just being in the moment? Um, I, I love to read um, Sufi mystical poetry, um, largely uh, uh, Rumi, but not just Rumi. Um, Got my Rumi here too. Oh, you do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the uh, earth-based spiritualities, I, I wouldn't say I you know, engage in paganism or um, indigenous traditions or that kind of thing. But I, uh, the natural environment is very important to me. Um, aesthetic experiences, looking at religious art or listening to religious music from various traditions um, also helps open me up. Um, but, but largely I'm sort of a contemplative intellectual. So it's mostly reading <laughs> yeah. and practicing mindfulness in the context of lots of different places. Um, I uh, have enjoyed um, worship at um, a Shiva temple. Um, and uh, I respect traditions when I'm participating in their rituals, whether they are something that's moving to me or not. Uh, but I never know for sure what's going to crack me open, hmm. right? And you just have to keep that openness to you, don't you? Um, well, sometimes I don't even feel particularly open, but it still cracks me open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, your choice then is to say, I'll stay open or to close. Right, yeah. You know, you can see the posture of people whenever they just kind of like slink back into their shell. Uh, what would you say to, the, to people out there who might be listening to this, who are truly struggling to accept the lifestyles of those who do not fit into neat religious categories, like people on a census who instead of, they they can't check Buddhist and Christian, so they wind up as nuns. Um, And a lot of people might say, well, that's okay, they are none. What would you say to the people out there who are struggling to accept that neat religious categories don't always work? Um, it would depend on the relationship I had with that person and um, whether I was speaking, whether they knew me and came to me in the context of being Christian pastor or Buddhist practitioner or just the dude they met on an airplane, right? Um, But part of what I would say is um, life and the world are really complex. And things that honor the complexity of being uh, are closer to God uh, than things that oversimplify and don't take into account all of the variables. And so that um, because somebody else is willing to open to that complexity doesn't mean they have to, but it also doesn't mean that person is wrong. They're finding a way to account for how messy life is. Yeah. I would also say on either side of the hyphen, our commitments and allegiances and um, uh, loyalties. And that um, just like you wouldn't choose between either of your parents necessarily, some people would, uh, or either of your children, you, you have different relationships to them, but you can't break the hyphen. You're always connected to them somehow, right? And that um, people who have more than one tradition are finding a way to maintain relationships uh, without rejecting or negating one 
or saying one is wrong. Um, and that it is far more about maintaining relationship than it is about being right. Um, I would also say uh, it's possible that God would call people to this or that God could use other traditions to reach people. And um, if we narrow, if we say that's not how God works, we are narrowing who we think God will be or can be um, in ways that we don't see God narrowing necessarily in sacred text. Um, and there are lots of examples in the Bible of Jesus uh, engaging people of other religious traditions and, and not asking them uh, to convert, um, but, but honoring their faith, right? Yeah. You know, that's a really important point too, because as a, as a person on this mortal coil, I, whenever I think about what God could be or is or was or whatever, I always think like, well, how could I ever possibly know that for sure? So like the limiting is something that I just never could get on board with. Um, and another thing that keeps coming up is that being religiously fluid can be hard. A lot of people who are religiously fluid are probably very lucky and have very supportive communities around them. And it's not hard. But did anybody ever tell you during the course of writing this book, if telling you these stories was sort of cathartic for them, did telling these stories help reduce their suffering because they felt like somebody was actually listening to their spiritually fluid identity? Um, I, I don't know that anyone told me that quite overtly. Uh, like, gosh, this was really useful. Yeah. People did say, this was really good. It, it was important for me to tell these stories. Um, and I'd never quite put it together this way. Um, and I think that's part of what human connection is, right? Listening to each other's stories and honoring them, creating a space where people can um, realize what it is they're trying to say or articulate their experience. Um, so I, I hope it was that for some people. Certainly, it's another way, it was another chance to tell, um, their, give their account of their spirituality uh, and to try some more things out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I love this book, When One Religion Isn't Enough, The Lives of Spiritually Fluid People. And I think that there is a lot of promise within this field. Just like you mentioned, you state early in the book that there is great need for qualitative research into religious multiplicity. Where do you see the most need? Like, where do you see this field going in five to 10 years? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I, I, I Actually, this fall at the meeting of the Society for Buddhist Christian Studies, uh, one of the themes is what can Buddhist Christian studies contribute to uh, um, broader understandings of uh, complex religious bonds, right? How can our scholarship put in these two traditions um, help the public make sense of religious multiplicity? Um, so part of it is helping, um, I think the field can help uh, us culturally find language to talk about these experiences and uh, ways to conceptualize what's going on um, that, um, that are respectful and, um, and that account for the complexity. Um, I think it's important to find uh, ritual and liturgical expressions that um, honor religious multiplicity, that the, the United Church of Christ uh, as a denomination is beginning to do some of that work. Um, and um, I also think there, there is, uh, we need, I think, at, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about criteria for evaluating whether uh, religious multiple belonging or religious complexity is uh, life-giving or damaging, right? Um, and, and so I think we have to find ways beyond health or normality to talk about these things while still respecting that um, there are times when complex religious bonds may not be helpful um, or uh, may be um, covering up um, real suffering that needs to be addressed in other ways. And, um, you know, we tend to talk about religion as a dimension of human diversity, um, which puts humanity at the center, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and there, there, yes, spirituality is an aspect of human diversity, but there's also something about these systems that are saying about reality, about being. Uh, 
um, that we have to find ways to account for too in mental health, in healthcare, in education, in other settings. So I hope that research on the topic begins to push into some of those public um, areas, policy areas, uh, cultural studies areas, right? Beyond religious studies. What are you working on next? <laughs> Nothing that has to do with religious multiplicity, actually. Uh, I, I have, uh, years ago, a, a, a collaborator who is a pediatrician, a pediatric nephrologist, a kidney doctor, and I did uh, qualitative research with about uh, 50 kids uh, who have end-stage renal disease. Their kidneys are failing around how they understand hope, what they think hope is, um, how they experience hope, and what it is members of the healthcare team or the broader community um, do that help them uh, maintain hope in the face of this chronic illness. And um, we've published on that, but I, I have a, a good uh, chunk of interviews that were never analyzed and never published on. So I'm working on a book proposal uh, about um, this concept of hope and uh, how it is that kids maintain hope in, in the midst of real psychosocial and physical suffering. Um, Ooh, that sounds beautiful and also very heavy. Um, well, Dr. Dwayne Bidwell, I have absolutely loved talking to you today about your brand new book, One One Religion Isn't Enough. I think that everybody should check it out, especially if uh, you know, you're wrestling with ideas of um, all types of different religious traditions. It's just such a accessible text for, I would say, just about anybody. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for talking to me. And, you know, I wish you all the best in your, in your current project. Thank you, Greg, very much. It's been fun talking with you, and I'm really grateful for the conversation. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>